You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast. You're listening to Seattle Growth Podcast. You are listening to the Seattle Growth Podcast. It is available for free on iTunes. iTunes, you know what I'm saying? Those are some of the talented voices of Seattle who have shared their perspective on the past, present, and future of Seattle's music scene in earlier episodes of Seattle Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff Shulman, and this is one of the last three episodes of the season. Today, we focus on the future of the places where musicians and music lovers come together, Seattle's famed music venues. Despite global recognition of Seattle's contribution to the music world in the 1990s era of grunge, the local music scene did not always have political support. Earlier in this season, Jason Finn recalled, We had a very aggressive uh, city attorney named Mark Sidron who, who just thought that young people getting together and listening to live music was a bad idea, kind of like uh, the Kevin Bacon movie. Um, so that it was really tough to have an all-ages venue. Former executive at the Grammys, Ben London, noted, The whole period of what Seattle is most known for... Um, was in spite of the government. There was a lot of stuff that happened in the 80s related to the teen dance ordinance, which was an ordinance they put into place that really didn't allow for people under 21 to view live music. There was a lot of uh, nimbyism and complaints about noise and all of these sorts of things that made it really hard. And so clubs were opening and closing, um, uh, things of that nature. And so the questions become, do music venues have what they need to continue to connect artists with a live audience? And what will be necessary to continue to foster this connection? As we look to address these questions in today's episode, there's a music venue that has come up time and time again in this podcast by platinum-selling band member Jason Finn. By, by the time the president started, there was basically The Crocodile and Mo, which is now New Mo's. By Hey Marseille frontman Matt Bishop. Um, our big break was Thursday night headlining show at Numo's for our self-release of our first album. And by founder of Sport & Life Records, Devon Manier. The music venues, you know, the ones that pretty much predominantly carry hip-hop would be Nectar, The Crocodile, uh, Numo's. Today's episode features the co-owner of that renowned music venue, Numo's, Stephen Severin. We got everybody back together and fought it for about a year and a half everything we could do to say this law is ridiculous like you can't have this law the episode also features david minert who has had an illustrious career in seattle's music scene owning clubs organizing music events and owning onto entertainment which manages the platinum selling band the lumineers sure i think if you look at where the lumineers come from out of denver colorado they came up in a music scene that was thriving. And part of what made that music scene thrive is the amazing amount of venues they have there. The episode gives insight into what we can expect for the future of Seattle's music venues. The episode also gives perspective on the political clout the music community carries as our city is in the midst of a major transformation. This continues the exploration of the past, present, and future of Seattle's music scene. Previously on Seattle Growth Podcast, you heard how Seattle's community of artists, innovators, and social enterprises are intersecting to build a brighter future for members of our community. You heard from the co-founder of the Melodic Caring Project, Levi Ware. There is a sense of, of profound division between people. And what, what we hope this project can be is a platform for these artists to come together, share their message of love, of empathy, of compassion, 
with these kids, but all of the crowd joins in that, and it's it's infectious. And you heard from the founder of First Aid Arts, Curtis Ramju. And I think our hearts have a resonant frequency too, that there are things that when you do them, they make your heart sing and come to life. And so for me, music, surfing, there are things that like make my heart sing and come alive. As we transition to today's episode, we continue the focus on the future of Seattle and how music shapes this future. To hear a perspective on what is missing in Seattle, join me as I sit down with David Minert. I am here with David Minert, a Seattle entrepreneur well-known as a leader in the local music and nightlife industry. David, thank you for joining me today. Great. Hi. Nice to uh, see you. Uh, so why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself? Um, well, I'm a pretty much lifelong Puget Sound area resident. Um, grew up in Normandy Park, lived in Seattle since uh, 1990, and um, but went to school at Western and just been all over around here. Um, Worked in the music business since 1990-ish, um, and uh, you know anything from booking clubs to managing small bands uh, to starting a music festival, working on festivals like Bumbershoot, and then um, at managing the Lumineers, who are doing quite well right now. So, uh, so tell me about your work organizing the Capitol Hill Block Party, which is one of the music events you talked about. Yeah, well, one of my partners, Marcus Charles, and I um, took that over. It was a fledgling little kind of one-stage free, one-block event, and we turned it into something that was 12,000 people a day over three days. And um, yeah, it was just booking and promoting and marketing, dealing with the city and all those issues and the neighbors, um, but turned into a really successful uh, thing, which I we then sold a few years ago um, to move on to other projects. And what other projects have you moved on to? Um, opened up a bunch of uh, restaurants and bars um, and also uh, started a company that just does the concessions for places like Marymore Park, um, the Showbox venues, and Bumbershoot. So. And now you also said you, you manage the Lumineers. Through, you're the owner of Onto Entertainment. Tell me a little bit about that. So Antu is a company we started um, in, I think, 2009, um, and we started it to um, develop local bands or smaller bands, and uh, we've managed a few different bands, but the one that's really taken off huge is the Lumineers. Uh, we signed them before they'd put out a record or anything and helped make those records, and um, it's a cool company. I have a, I have a partner. Uh, Brent Stifle and then Kristen uh, kind of runs the day-to-day operation. So, and and so you're involved in the music scene. You know, you've got the Capitol Hill Block Party. You've got Onto Entertainment. You're you're working with uh, several night nightclubs and venues where musicians play. What are your thoughts on the current options for live music consumption here in Seattle? Well, we have a big hole in the Seattle market. So w- we have a lot of great venues from you know, 200 people up to 1,800 people, uh, 1,800 being the show box. And those are a lot of full-time venues, very cool venues from Numos, uh, the show box, both venues are obviously really great. Um, but then it kind of stops until you get to Key Arena, um, which is a bummer in a, in a big music market like this. So we miss out on a ton of uh, bands that are kind of from the 2,000 to 8,000 level um, market and and those go to a lot of times during the summer they go to Marymore Park or San Michel uh, Winery, um, but outside the city. Um, and then even the the shows that come into the city, 
uh, come into the market that are bigger shows go to like the Tacoma Dome because even Key Arena is not a great venue, to be honest. Um, it's kind of an old, outdated uh, venue for concerts. So, so help me um, visualize. So we, we've got, you've, you've described it in terms of seat numbers. What kind of bands are well-suited or bands that people have heard of where in their life cycle were they well-suited here in Seattle and, and who are we missing out on? Well, I, I think if you, you know, looking at Mary Moore Park's lineup, which is a great lineup, um, you, you can see the bands that play there and don't play in the city, right? So it's not like it's super far outside the city, but it's not in the city and the city loses the tax revenue as well. So anywhere from the Shins to um, Beck, um, all, you know, all across that range, there's a pop acts that play there. Um, I just think anything in that three to three to 6,000 capacity range where we really have a hole in the market. And so you, you've talked about how music lovers who want to see bands in that range have to maybe head to Mary Moore Park. What about local artists? What, is there any impact on them? Um, well, I think, um, you know, bands like The Shins or uh, that level of band, it, it definitely impacts them as well if they want to play in their hometown. Um, I think, you know, also a lot of those shows have local artists opening sometimes, not all the time, but and that takes away those opportunities as well. So, And, and you've, you've talked about the current options and you've mentioned a few at the lower uh, capacity range and then you've got Kirina. How has the options to consume live music changed over the last maybe five years or 10 years? Well, I think, I think the city's growing, so there's just more people. Um, but I don't think Seattle's ever had great options in, in that range. I mean, above 1800, we have the Paramount Theater, which is a beautiful theater, really great. But it's only part-time available for live music because they do so many uh, theater shows. Um, and so we've always had this kind of hole and, and, and really haven't filled it, unlike other cities. So say a city like Nashville just built a 7,000 capacity outdoor venue um, right in the middle of the city, right downtown. Uh, Denver has um, a 7,000 capacity venue in the city, has Red Rocks just, out, I mean, in the city, but just outside of downtown. Um, in a 9,000 capacity venue, they also have Fiddler's Green, which is 17,000 capacity venue, and Pepsi Center, which is 18, I think. And so you look at a, a markets like Nashville and Denver that have so many options, places to play, so many options. The music scenes are obviously thriving. But at the same time, Seattle um, City Council and Mayor like to say that this is a music city and music's a priority. But we're never going to have a music scene like Denver and Nashville or Austin without venues. And we don't have the venues right now. And so you've mentioned we, there's a, a hole, you, you believe, in kind of this mid-range. Are we seeing, is Seattle doing really well at kind of the smaller side? Or are we seeing changes in that over the last couple I think, of years? I think we're doing well at the smaller side. I mean, you know, we have venues like Barboza and the, the Crocodile, uh, Chop Suey. Um, then the Neptune and the, and the show boxes. I mean, so you, you have multiple, I mean, venues in Ballard, there's, there's a, a bunch in the smaller range. And I think we've done well with that. I think, you know, we're probably missing out some in, in the very small range and the, the hundred to 200, like we used to have, um, those are harder to do in, in this market because rent's so expensive, but, but generally we're doing pretty good in that, that area. Any concluding thoughts? 
Well, sure. I think if you look at where the Lumineers come from out of Denver, Colorado, they came up in a music scene that was thriving. And part of what made that music scene thrive is the amazing amount of venues they have there. And so going out to shows in Denver is just something people do. I mean, people know that like when you play at Red Rocks, an artist that may do 6,000 people in another market are going to sell 9,000 tickets at Red Rocks. Um, because people just go to shows there more, but because they've learned to do it because there's so many more shows, because there's amazing venues. Seattle doesn't have that. So we, we pretend we're a music city, but our public policy is not pro-music. We've, we've gone from being anti-music in the 80s and early 90s to being kind of neutral on it. Um, everybody wants to claim they're pro-music and arts, but, they, but you, you see it by what they put into it. And we're not putting stuff into venues of that size like other cities are. So I think if I'm a band here, I'd be frustrated with the city council um, continuing to use, uh, you know, my culture as a thing to get elected and talk about while not really doing anything for it. David, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate your time and perspective today. Yeah, thanks. Next, join me as I sit down with the co-owner of the famed venue, Numos. I am here with Stephen Severin, co-owner of the famed Seattle music venue, Numos, and also Rainmaker at Wake Up Presents, which uh, helps promote uh, concerts here in the Seattle area. Stephen, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So why don't you just start by telling me a little bit about yourself and how you got passionate about making a contribution to the Seattle music community. How long you got? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. I moved to Seattle in uh, 1992 from Arizona. And uh, started going to lots of shows as I have for almost 35 years now. After some time, I met Lori Lefevre, who owned Rock Candy. Uh, I was just starting school, and then I ran into Lori, and she's like, Hey, I need a writer. I need a publicist. Can you write? Sure, I can write. Not true at all. I'm actually a terrible writer, but I was like, Yeah, I can figure this out. I've written for a couple of punk zines back in the day two articles. Uh, but I was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Great. A job in music. Awesome. Uh, so then I went from that to two weeks later, she said, Hey, I want to go to Turkey for six months. Can you learn how to run my company? Which I was like, absolutely. So crash course and learning how to book a club, manage a club, market, Everything right out of the gates. I learned everything trial by error, and uh, it launched from there. I went from there, uh, which I was there for about two and a half, three years. Got to put on some of the most amazing shows. I mean, it was just a classic, awesome, iconic venue in Seattle. From there, I worked at El Corazon for three whole months. It was called Graceland there, and from there, I went to iSpy which was on uh, 5th and Virginia. It's not there anymore. I ran that for about three years, six months after they opened and left six months before they closed. Uh, And the the main reason I left is because Linda Dershing had been snooping around and wanted me to come book Chop Suey, which had been open for six months. And I wanted to learn how to run a bar from her. I mean, if there's anybody who's, especially at that time, the epitome of the person who controlled the bar scene and did it with integrity and uh, also a woman, which was pretty big then, uh, 
I wanted to learn from her. And so I went to work at Chop Suey and she sold the business six months later. Um, <laughs> so I, then again, I had to learn how to run the entire bar side of things. And then um, I got the chance to uh, buy into Numos about a year and a half after they opened. And now that's been almost 14 years, which is crazy. Never, ever had planned on owning a club. The whole thing with going to work for Linda, I wanted to open a little tiny 50-person bar. Just a little bar for me and my friends, which now I know that that actually doesn't really work super well financially, but I didn't know anything then, and that's, that's what I had in mind. So here we are. And now Numos has come up time and time again in this podcast, looking at the past, present, and the future of Seattle music scene. What is it about Numos and Moe's before it that is so special that people keep saying that's where you got to play and that's a big part for musicians and, and music goers alike? So going back to the beginnings and going back to Moe's Rock and Cafe, which I feel like I went to like half the shows there. I mean, I, I was in there so often, is... The reason that it was built was out of a passion for music. It wasn't about making money. And the owner, I mean, he had a day job. He was a lawyer. He made his money. This was a fun thing for him to do. That's a passion project. To this day, he is still our partner, and he is still just as passionate as he was then. Um, the other thing, and then when, when he reopened it, there's, there's been three of us that have been running it for so long, and we just paid attention to every single detail. I mean, that's why it still goes so well today. We look at every single line item on a P&L sheet, which is profit and loss, to make sure we're not overpaying for stuff. We make sure that every artist that comes through there, regardless how big, feels like they're treated like Eddie Vedder walking in. Like everybody is treated the same. We try to treat customers the same. When you walk in that door, the very first impression is the door person. That's going to decide how your night's going to go. If the door person says, hey, how's it going? You've got a positive place. A positive, you've got a positive uh, attitude going into the space. I've been in some venues where they show, shove a flashlight in my eye and grumble at me. I'm pissed. I'm immediately pissed as I'm walking in. I'm like, why is that guy showing a flashlight at me? I'm in my 40s. So I, I think that's been the, the main thing that's been able to keep us up near the top and uh, just an amazing staff, an amazing staff that's all dedicated and really, really loves the work and loves the music. What are you most proud of in terms of an act that's come through Numos that then went on to amazing things that you feel excited and honored to be a part of that journey? Mm. Band of Horses is probably the band that we had sort of the most connection with. Uh, they were all really good friends. Half of them worked at the bar. We did their first shows. We did the show where they got signed to Sub Pop. We've traveled all around to see them in different cities, markets, heckle them. Uh, so that would probably be a big one. Fleet Foxes would be another one. Um, I actually used to work with 
Asia, who is their manager, Asia Pecknold, Robin's sister, at Chop Suey. We worked there together. And so we've always kept our friendship. And, you know, as we were starting to do shows at, at Numos, it was like, absolutely, come. We heard the music and it was like, absolutely, yes, come do this. You know, and at first, nobody was coming to shows because nobody knew who they were. That changed really fast. I mean, they definitely jumped up pretty fast once people heard the music. Um, there's, there's probably a bunch of others, but those are two of the like the bigger bands that sort of made it coming out of of Numos. In your 14 years with Numos and over 25 years here in the Seattle music scene, what stayed the same? that you appreciate about Seattle and its music community? There's always going to be 22-year-old kids moving from Nebraska, Kentucky, uh, Macon, Georgia, coming out to Seattle because we're always considered in the top three in the country for uh, music capitals. I like to think we're number one. Um, and so there's always going to be those kids that want to come out here and, you know, they, they're bringing their band or they're starting a band, working with other people, and they're going to go do the circuit. They're going to go play the small clubs. They're going to start at the Rendezvous. They're going to play the Crockback Bar. Now they're going to play Barboza. They're, they're going to play the small starter rooms. The Central Saloon is a new spot that people are... Uh, back to doing shows again. I, and so you're always, you've always had those people, those young kids that are coming and not necessarily trying to make it. Although, you know, everybody's dream is to be a rock and roll star and live the life of David Bowie. But a lot of them are just coming to have fun. You know, they're just coming because they want to play music. They want to be around people that are young like them and just come have fun. And that's been the same at least since I've moved here in 92, and I know that it was that way before. I know I, I came as the wave was really hitting. Um, if I'd have been here a few years earlier, I would have got to really see it all begin. But I hadn't actually been planning on moving to Seattle. That's a whole other story. But And what has changed that poses a challenge for you as you try to bring artists to fans, uh, whether that's through Numos or Wake Up Presents? There's actually a few things that have changed massively. Um, one is the income equality in this city is staggering. I know at one point we had the most millionaires uh, per capita in the country. Um, and these 22-year-old kids that are moving here, they cannot afford to live in the city anymore. I mean, they have to go out. We need more affordable housing. We need more places like an artist collective that the city helped build. It's a, a live and workspace. So they have like the apartments upstairs where you live and downstairs is your studio where you can paint or make music or whatever it is. Uh, it, it's super important because the reason that so many people have moved to Seattle is our arts culture. And we've also had a lot of other people move to Seattle for jobs, for Amazon. I mean, Amazon expanding, I think it's like 50,000 employees they have now. So many people have moved here and 
what's different is the people that moved here before generally contributed to the arts culture. And I don't feel like a lot of those people are contributing. They're coming and they're taking part in it because all clubs around town have never been busier. They're going to live shows. There's no doubt about that. They're going to dance clubs, but they're not, they're just participating. They're not doing anything to contribute to it. And it's diluted the art scene that we have. I, oh God, I guess it's four or five years ago. Uh, some magazine out of New York came and met with us and did a whole spread because Pike Pine was one of the top 10 artists communities in the country, which was awesome. And it was, I mean, we were killing it every single week. There was some kind of weirdos out there doing their thing, which is great. I love weirdos. I want more weirdos here, but weirdos can't afford to live here. And that's, you know, something that we made a really big platform with uh, SNMA, which is Seattle Nightlife Music Association, who um, I'm on the board. And we work with the city council, mayor's office, governor, all the political folks uh, to work on pushing the music agenda forward. And a big part that we talked about uh, specifically with uh, Jenny Durkin on her uh, platform was affordable housing and how important that was to the music scene. Uh, we did a uh, economic study a few years back and found that uh, the Seattle music community and nightlife contributes $1.4 billion to the Seattle economy. Once we did that study and put that out, Seattle councils and Seattle politicians started paying a lot more attention to us because we have a huge reach. Like we may not have the money that say real estate developers, but we can reach a lot more people and get a lot more votes than they can. And so we've, we've used it a few different times and uh, it's worked really well. And so we talked to Durkin and said, this is really important and she is working on it. I mean, we're, you know, uh, of course a bigger thing is getting, homeless people off the streets, which we're, they're working on, we're working on. I mean, this, you know, we do benefits at Numos all the time with different groups to try to help them out. But there's also only so many projects and so many things we, we can do. We, you know, we got to stay a little focused to make sure that we can keep pushing the, the music side in Seattle so that we don't fall off. With this money and people moving to Seattle, you said clubs have uh, never been busier. What about the economics of music venues? Are they getting more favorable or is it getting, are there some challenges to keeping these businesses going? Uh, I mean, there's definitely challenges. Uh, for instance, one thing that we've been going through with the city is it takes forever to get a permit to open a new business. And it is extremely frustrating. Just had a really good chat with Mike O'Brien about it. And a lot of people are going outside of Seattle to open them because it can take nine months, maybe a year, between the time that you say you want to open something till the time that it's open. 
I mean, you've got your construction time, but you've got to wait for your permits. And sometimes that that's taking six months and that's just not okay. I mean, that's all time that you're, you're paying rent on that space while nothing is happening. Uh, so it's definitely gotten more challenging. There's more people coming in with outside money. Um, so there's more people coming in and starting businesses, which makes it harder for the, the local Seattleites that have been doing this for a long time. The other big factor that has hurt a lot of smaller businesses um, is in general, like our taxes just creep up a little bit more than other industries. And it's really frustrating to watch a company like Amazon or Microsoft, like not have to really pay taxes who are making billions of dollars. And we who make thousands, we have to pay far more taxes. So those are some large contributing factors that are driving some people out. And so the economics of bringing music to the people are, are changing a little bit. Um, and the people who are living in Seattle is obviously changing as more and more people move here every day. What would you say the soul of Seattle's music scene is that's going to be constant across all these other changes that are happening? I think it's the young kids making music. That's what's going to happen no matter what. There's always going to be the kids that want to go out there and bang on drums, strum guitars, spin records, spit on a mic. They, we have cultivated a scene where we have all these ways of getting kids into music way earlier. The Vera Project. It's been a way for kids to get into music earlier, to learn about music earlier, to have someone pushing them to play instruments. That's been a huge factor. And when I say kids, I mean, I'm talking anywhere from 16 to 24. Um, so that's, that's been a huge help. And I think no matter what happens, that's always going to be here. There's always going to be people wanting to play at their local club or their local bar because that's what Seattle's about. That's a huge part of what we have been since the late 80s. And that's never going to change. As long as there's people that keep pushing it forward. We need more younger activists that keep pushing it. All of the folks that uh, have been working at this for the last 20 years, I, I hate to say it, but we're getting tired. We have multiple businesses, some have kids, and it makes it a lot harder to keep pushing to get legislation that's positive towards the music industry and to keep going to city council meetings and talking with them and just keep pushing a positive music agenda forward. I mean, we're still doing it, but every year it's harder and harder for us to do it. And so we need the next crop of, of kids to get politically active. Why do you see a need for this intersection between music and politics? Why not just create music on its own? Ah, well, here's a story. Okay, so Tom Carr was our city attorney 
who really didn't like fun. He was against music, he was against bars, and so he and uh, his assistant, who I forget her name, which is good, um, they set up a thing to where if a club had any of these three things happen, then you could lose your liquor license. And the three things were over-service, fighting outside, or excessive garbage around the venue. Those are all subjective. None of those you can prove on hard facts. And so we got the old gang back together from the old jam pack days and the poster ban. And when they didn't want to let all ages and 21 plus shows be in the same room, we got everybody back together and fought it for about a year and a half. And we went to city council meetings and we went to meet with the mayor and we got everybody writing letters and making phone calls and sending emails, everything we could do to say, this law is ridiculous. Like you can't have this law. We're fine with something that's, that is concrete, but something so subjective like this makes it way too easy for you to target minority businesses. And they had already shut down and done uh, like sting operations on the 700 Club, which was a great club back in the day um, that was, you know, it was a great dance club, but it was mostly black people in their dancing. And I believe the owners uh, were of, I'm not sure what, what descent they were, um, but the cops came and started messing with them and other spots. And so, long story short, we beat it. We beat them. Um, we got it overturned in council, and it was awesome. And a few weeks later, all of a sudden, they did Operation Sting Nightlife, and they went into every club, every bar, and tried to catch everybody for not IDing, over-serving, anything they could do. They walked into Numo's one night. We had, I remember the show. It was Tim and Eric. We had two shows. So you have a comedy show early. Everybody goes out. We're waiting for everybody to come back in. And the fire department, the police department show up. And they're like, you're, uh, you're over capacity. And I'm like, no, I'm not. They're like, yes, you are. I'm like, no, I'm not. My capacity is 716. I have 650 people in there. I am not over capacity. And they said, nope, your capacity is 140 over there. It's 100 over in that area. It's 49 in that area. So he took Numos, which was always an aggregate number, just like every venue has been in Seattle, and broke it up into little compartments. And so for eight weeks, we could only sell to like 250 tickets out of our normal 650, which it was in April, and we had a lot of sold-out shows, and we had to pay the bands based on it, all while we were working with the city of Seattle's music commission, particularly Kate Becker and James Keblis, who were amazing. Thank you so much. You saved my life, literally, and you saved our club. 
Um, and we, we fought it. We had to fight it again. And uh, we got it through. And when it came time to elect a new mayor, we backed McGinn 100%. And we backed the person running against Tom Carr. And we got everybody out to the polls. And we destroyed Nichols. McGinn came in, super pro music guy. Tom Carr's off in Denver doing something else. And that was when we realized, like, the power of politics and the music. Like, I had no desire to do anything like that at all. Like, I did not want to get into local politics because of music. I didn't want to spend the time, didn't want to get into it, but I was forced. I mean, we lost almost $100,000 in a very short amount of time that we didn't have. Um, and so once that happened, we've been involved in politics ever since. And now it's more fun. And if you had to summarize, why should a young musician pay attention to local government issues? Essentially, you've got to keep your eye on the prize. And for young musicians, the prize is to keep the music industry going in Seattle. You need to make sure that there's not a Tom Carr that gets elected who's going to come in and do everything they can to squash music in here. You've got to worry about all of the develop, new development that's happening where they come in and move next to a club and then complain that there's loud music coming out. And you're like, yes, we were here. And that's something that we're actually working on our, uh, our music Seattle Music Advisory Board that I'm on right now is making sure that when you come in as a new development, that you sign something saying there's a bar across the street, there's a light, there's a nightclub across the street, that type of thing. So we need to make sure the, that everybody is just paying attention because you can, you can get really screwed really fast, but you can also do a lot of really positive things, which we're doing. I mean, we have a very pro music and nightlife mayor right now. We have for the last couple. And we're going to continue to push that way. And as long as there's, as long as you 22 year old rock and roll and hip hop stars are out there and making sure that everybody's minding their P's and Q's in our government, we'll be able to keep everything going strong and have a, the best music community in the country. Any concluding thoughts? Go out to your local shows, support local businesses. There are a million coffee shops. You don't need to go to Starbucks um, and keep, keep your eyes open and try to help the next person out. Stephen, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Thank you. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. We have just two episodes left in this fourth season examining the past, present, and future of Seattle's music scene. Please subscribe to the podcast in iTunes so you don't miss a single episode. Next week features Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter Hollis. You know, I think there's pockets of possibility, but, like, I do think that the creative community is being choked here. We're being suffocated here. At this time, I want to thank all my guests for sharing their valuable time and insight. I also want to thank Ed Cromer and Mike Bosey, who have done fantastic work featuring the podcast on UW's Foster School of Business blog. Victor Balta, Peter Kelly, and Rebecca Gorley also deserve recognition for their work in sharing Seattle Growth Podcast with the University of Washington community. 
I also want to thank the USA Today, the Atlanta Constitution, and King 5 for recognizing the Seattle Growth Podcast work by seeking perspective on the changes happening in our city. And importantly, I want to thank you, the listeners, for taking an interest in what is happening in Seattle. I'm Jeff Schulman, and I thank all of you for joining me on this journey in the fourth season of Seattle Growth Podcast.